It's a brief but very dense and tough passage, uh, particularly if you are in a role of leadership in our church. Uh, Let me pray uh, as we look at this passage together. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active and that it cuts to the heart. I pray that we might have ears to hear your word now and through your spirit, the conviction to put it into practice. Amen. In our secular society, good leadership is often defined by someone's charisma uh, and their ability to influence people. Uh, For others, leadership is about having a clear vision. Uh, Or perhaps it's the capacity to take a plan and put it into action and bring it all together. Uh, But whatever the details, uh, we tend, when we're looking at leadership, uh, to look at people's skill. Uh, What we don't tend to look at and what we don't tend to value is character. Uh, In fact, often we're happy to overlook bad character and bad behaviour Uh, as long as the person achieves uh, the results that we expect. And so the argument goes, well, they might not be uh, the perfect vessel, they might be a very imperfect vessel, but they get the job done, and so the ends justify the means. I think it's one of the reasons, and I'm probably about to offend someone, that I think Trump gets away with what he does. Uh, He can say outrageous things that would perhaps have brought down previous presidents, uh, but uh, the stock market's up, unemployment is generally down, Uh, there are more conservative judges in the High Court, and so lots and lots of people are very happy with his leadership. And things were going along all very well, and perhaps a little less so with the coronavirus, but he still remains a very popular figure. Uh, But in the words of 1 Samuel, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when it comes to Christian leadership, if we want to get to the end, then character matters. And I'm not saying that skill doesn't matter, and I'm not saying that the only criteria is godliness, but we need both. Uh, And the big point of of this particular passage is we need trustworthy leaders who hold firmly to a trustworthy message. And the passage we just read sets this incredibly high bar for leaders in the church. I mean, you just read it and you go, well, who could possibly lead anything? Who can live up to that standard? And Paul isn't saying that people are perfect. No one's perfect. But Paul is saying that we need to choose leaders for whom these attributes are a natural, God-given, spirit-enabled part of their character and who have the discipline to work hard at those aspects of their character that perhaps don't come so naturally. And perhaps outside the scope of this particular passage, but certainly true, uh, we need leaders who repent when they fail Uh, rather than trying to excuse and justify. Because that is our natural inclination, isn't it? To justify our behaviour. So let's have a look at this passage, uh, starting at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So from last week we read how Paul is committed to furthering the faith of God's elect and to grow 
they need to know what godliness looks like so they can walk the path that God has set out for them and to walk it confidently and with the hope of eternal life at the end. And we have God's word as a lamp to our feet. But often we need a guide, uh, someone who can coordinate you know, the, the gifts and the resources that he has gathered together so that we can all walk together in the same direction. Uh, and that means we need leaders. Uh, when I was at school, uh, I used to be involved in this thing called cadets, which is kind of like you know, playing armies uh, for boys. Uh, and part of that was that we had to learn how to navigate you know, with a map and a compass, and this was all sort of pre-GPS days. And so they put us into groups, and uh, you know, we'd have to walk about 15k, and at the end of the day, we had to arrive at a particular coordinate, and that's where we'd sort of set up camp. Uh, And can I say, you know, it's one thing to sort of know in theory how to use a map and a compass. Uh, It's another thing to actually put it into practice. And when you're in the bush, you know, all those lines and those hills and those gullies and mountains, let me tell you, they all just look like bush to me, right? Uh, So often, it's not just enough to know how to do it. We do actually then need to be able to put it into practice. And so having someone who is capable... Uh, who has experience and wisdom and knowledge, well, that becomes really valuable. Uh, And it's the same in the Christian life. You know, if the map and the compass are a bit like God's word, uh, then it's really helpful when we have people who can guide us in God's word and help us put it into practice. And in the language of this passage, uh, leaders are described as elders and overseers. So it's, it's two different words. Uh, in this passage, but in this context, they're used to describe the same person. Uh, In other places, and particularly in Paul's letter to Timothy, the role of elder and the role of overseer sounds like it's two distinct roles. So the elders usually, it sounds like we're a group of people, and the elders were the ones who would then appoint overseers uh, to then uh, lead the church, and that was kind of the structure. Uh, but, But whatever the structure is, Uh, We need to be wise about who we choose as our leaders because the more authority they have and the more influence they have, then the more we should expect from them and the more cautious we should be. Because as much as they can do good, uh, they can also do harm. And as Christian leaders, uh, we recognise that who we are makes a difference. And how we lead makes a difference. And, of course, we need to be leaders who know where we are going. And if one of those three things become compromised, then we end up compromising all three. I remember uh, years ago I was at men's convention up at Katoomba, fantastic conference, and I was listening to an English speaker uh, talking about uh, what it means to be a father, what it means to love your family, and it was a brilliant series of talks. I I never go home and listen to talks a second time. Uh, But I bought the tapes of these talks, I I took them home, I watched them again, I gave them to my leaders to watch, I watched them in our Bible study, I just thought they were fantastic. Uh, About a year later... The speaker uh, at that conference left his wife and moved in with another person. And it was really difficult to then listen to those talks again. The words hadn't changed. They were the same biblically faithful, gracious, godly words that, that he'd spoken a year ago. But what had changed was my perception of the person. 
So he was clear about where we should be going as Christian fathers. He was clear about how we should do it. But who he was, his character had been compromised. Uh, And that made it difficult to listen to his message. So as Christians, uh, we need to make sure that it's not just about what we say, not even just about how we say it, but who we are. And if we want to know someone's character, then a good place to start is our family. You know, we're pretty good at keeping it together in public. You know, we, we sort of know social etiquette and, you know, we can do that. But when you get home, uh, it's a bit of a safe spot. It's a bit of an unguarded spot. And it's certainly where you perhaps see us at our most honest. Uh, it's where you see us, you know, when we are tired and weary and frustrated. You see us when we engage with our family and we're a little disappointed that the milk's been left out again or the dishwasher hasn't been turned on or emptied. Uh, And then, ironically, we shout at our kids for for shouting at each other and and we don't even see the irony of that. Uh, In our home, well, that's where you see us at our most honest. Now, we can't exactly sit in someone's home and watch them because that's a little creepy. But certainly, as we look at how families interact with each other, uh, how uh, husbands and wives interact, how their children grow up, they're they're pretty good indicators of what's going on in the family unit. And so Paul starts by saying, if you want to look at leaders in the church, or who should be leaders in the church, then look at their family, and starting with their marriage. So verse 6, an elder must be blameless faithful to his wife. So blameless speaks to their seriousness about their faith and an indicator of that seriousness is how they approach their marriage. Uh, To us, it seems a pretty low bar of faithfulness. Just don't be, you know, unfaithful and have an affair. We we look at that and go, gee, that's not a high bar, that's a low bar. Uh, But if you were in Greek-Roman culture, like you would have been in Crete, then actually faithfulness wasn't a moral category in the sense of being sexually faithful to to your spouse, at least for a male. Uh, It was just expected that that you would have a wife at home and they'd raise the children and and that the men could really kind of do whatever they wanted. So in Christian circles, for, for someone to be a Christian leader in that world... Well, they stood out as vastly different. That said something about their devotion to Christ and it said something about their character. The second indicator in leading their family was how a person leads their children. So verse 6 again, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So there is an expectation that elders will lead their children to love Christ. Uh, And again, this was particularly significant in ancient culture because where the family went in terms of their faith and the religion of their household, the children were expected to follow. So if the children were disobedient, then it wasn't simply a rejection of Jesus, it was also a rejection of the father's leadership in the household. You know, ultimately, uh, God is the one responsible Uh, for bringing our children to himself. Our children are saved by grace in the same way that we are. But for someone to be an elder, uh, we need to be committed to raising our children to love Jesus. 
So we need to teach them God's word. We need to model it in our behaviour. And you should be able to get a pretty good insight into how someone leads their children by then how they behave. And of course, our reputation, like it or not, fair or not, is partly reflected in how our children behave. In our individualistic culture, we want to separate the two, but you can't really quite, can you? We do look at the parents and we look at the children as a family and that says something about our reputation. And if an elder doesn't have a good reputation in the community, then it's good, it's hard for him to have a good reputation for Christ. So whatever happens in the household uh, gives us at least some insight into how they're going to lead and their capacity to lead God's household. So verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Yeah, and again we see who we are and how we behave are just as important as where we are going. And all of these attributes become indicators of what it looks like to be blameless and their ability to lead and their good reputation. So Christian leaders shouldn't be overbearing. Uh, they shouldn't be weak, uh, but they also can't use their position to control and to coerce and to manipulate. You know, even if they get a good outcome, it ends up being soaked in sin. And so you might win the battle, but we're certainly losing the war. Uh, the same could be said for quick temper, can't it? You know, if I sit in a meeting... Uh, it doesn't matter what we're trying to achieve, if we're yelling at each other, then something is profoundly wrong. Now, each year, uh, all the Anglican ministers and a whole bunch of others get together for what we call Synod. It's our sort of big governance thing. Uh, one of the things I like about Synod, one of the things I dislike is it can be incredibly tedious, uh, but uh, one of the, the positives is, is the way that people approach debate. So you've got 900 people in the room, you've got people who have vastly different views... But the tone of the conversation is almost invariably seeking to respect the other person and to honour God as you put your opinion forward. So the disagreements are big, but the way we disagree uh, is, is often the most encouraging thing about it. Uh, and certainly that, that's got to be true for us, isn't it? We won't always have the same view of things, uh, the same view of Scripture necessarily or the same view of what colour to paint a wall. Uh, but how we disagree, uh, that is what counts as much as the outcome. You know, there are so many people who came to church uh, looking for Christ uh, but left disillusioned by the failure of the leadership to model Christ to them. And they don't just leave disillusioned with the church or the institution or the leader, they leave disillusioned with Jesus. And so the behaviour of our leaders has a profound impact. Uh, but equally, it can have a positive impact. So if they're all the negatives, then the positives are in verse 8. So rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. You know, being hospitable means you know, welcoming people wherever we meet them. Uh, welcoming people as they come into the church, welcoming people into our homes 
uh, and sharing a meal with them. And again, that, that continues to be a really significant part of culture. Home is a very personal space for us. And so when we say to someone, come into my home, you are inviting someone into your life. And that's certainly something that we should model. It should be part of our life together. We want to say, I welcome you and you are welcome here. So our behaviour can do damage, but our behaviour can equally do good. And certainly whatever culture a leader sets has a huge influence on the culture of a church. And I'm very conscious of that as I lead. You know, what culture do I set? Do I set a desire for godliness? Do I set a desire for prayerfulness? Do I set a desire for unity, gospel-minded unity? But whatever culture the leader sets, that is going to have a huge influence on the community. And we have an opportunity to say something wonderfully unique to our broader community. Because our broader community is struggling, isn't it? You know, we are, in theory, more connected than ever with things like social media, and yet we feel more isolated. We're more anxious, more, detre- more depressed. Well, we're told that being true to ourselves will satisfy our souls, and yet we feel unsatisfied. Now, I don't want to say, you know, all the past was good and all the present is bad. I'm saying the past, all present, Jesus is the answer. Uh, And the more we live out our faith, the more we will stand in contrast to the hopelessness of our society and the more brightly we will point people to Jesus. And so far the focus uh, in this passage has been on the character of our leaders, who they are, how they lead. And this last verse then focuses on the where the elders are leading. So verse 9, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So how do we know what it looks like to do good? Uh, what does it look like to be self-controlled? Why is violence a poor way to get what you want? Uh, why is fidelity in our marriage a good thing? Uh, it certainly wasn't a good thing for the Greeks or the Romans. But of course, the answer to all of those things is because we understand who God has created us to be, and he speaks through his word. But God is concerned for more than just our ethics. Uh, All of those things are important, uh, but more significantly, they're built on the foundation that we are created by God, and we are created to have a relationship with God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And every person from every nation is called to repent and commit to following Jesus. So in the words of Peter from the book of Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now that's the trustworthy message we've been taught, and that's the trustworthy message that we must defend. You know, there are now plenty of leaders in the church who no longer believe Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sin. Uh, They certainly see him as a great example of compassion and self-sacrifice. They love the fact that he stood up to the self-righteous religious establishment and that he was martyred by an oppressive Roman regime. 
Uh, but in the end, they reduced Jesus to an advocate for radical social change, which is a long way short from saviour of the world. Now, it's not saying that we've got everything right and they've got everything wrong, but we have to be constantly guided and committed to what do the scriptures say? Where do the scriptures lead us? And when there are two different understandings about what the Bible says, well, then we need wisdom from our leaders, don't we? We need wisdom to know when it's so important and there's so much at stake that we cannot budge. Uh, And then we need wisdom to go, actually, there are some issues where there is less at stake and the differences are relatively minor and therefore we let it go through to the keeper. So anything to do with salvation and how we are saved, well, at that point we need to be an immovable object. Uh, Anything to perhaps do with head coverings in the church, well, perhaps a little more cultural and obviously we haven't been fighting that battle very hard in this room. But whatever it is, it does take wisdom from our leaders, doesn't it? And it takes discernment. Uh, What are the really important things? What are the things we let go through to the keeper? And so we need trustworthy leaders who hold firm to a trustworthy message. You know, this passage is first and foremost to those who would be elders in the church and to those who would choose those elders. Uh, Set the bar high. Uh, No leader is better than a bad leader. And as a friend said to me often, a fish rots from the head. So we need to choose our leaders wisely. Uh, But if these attributes are true for those who lead our church, then they're also true for everyone else in the church. So when we appoint parish councillors, we don't simply want people who are good at finance and policy and property... We want people who have a godly character. And when we choose people to lead our kids' ministry, we don't want young people who are simply enthusiastic and like children or who perhaps are good communicators. We want people who are going to be godly role models to our children, who they can look up to in the room when they're leading, but also by reputation, how they live in the rest of the week. And if you're a Christian here today and you have no formal responsibility beyond your personal influence, uh, then this passage is still about you uh, because leaders are simply modelling what every Christian is called to be. You know, we've all been given God's spirit. Uh, We should all desire to be people who are known for our character, uh, people who are known for our integrity and our commitment to Christ and who want to bring honour to the reputation of Christ. So for the Christians here today, here's my challenge question. What is your reputation? How does that reputation bring honour to Christ? And out of all those things that we listed today, what is one thing that you could work on? Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we've reflected on your word now, I pray that we might take seriously our responsibility to appoint godly leaders in whatever capacity they might serve and help us to recognise and genuinely believe that we need godly character if we hope to honour you and achieve godly outcomes. Amen.